passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. everyone and welcome to another edition of Cruel Summer, a podcast that looks back at each and every G1 Climax Tournament Finals from the year 1991 to 2018 and this is episode 17 and so we're going to be looking at uh, the year 2007 featuring Yuji Nagata versus Hiroshi Tanahashi and uh, joining me today on this episode is the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, the uh, New Japan-centric uh, Super J-Cast, and he is a person I like to call the master of the crisps, Mr. Joel Abraham. Joel, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. Uh, this is my second appearance on Post Wrestling, which is always a treat for me because if I can be a bit of a fanboy for a moment, I listened to you guys, what, about 10 years ago? I remember even, you know, back when it was uh, just you guys were on the law. Uh, so it's a real pleasure to be uh, joining you on your actual show now. And you, you were, your first appearance was on eggshells, was it not? Yeah, that's correct. And so like you're, you're kind of the specialist about talking about particular events re- related to New Japan Pro Wrestling. Uh, so... I want to ask you for the you know for our listeners out there who may or may not be familiar with the Super J Cast. Tell us a bit about that podcast. How did you get involved with that? And maybe also while you're at it, like your your um, kind of the history of your fandom in wrestling and in New Japan pro wrestling in particular. All right. Well, I'm going to expose. <laughs> I'm going to get buried by the gatekeepers here. Basically, I jumped upon the New Japan bandwagon after the famous six-star match, the Omega Okada match at Wrestle Kingdom 11. And I watched that after hearing all the buzz about it. Absolutely loved it. And I just got hooked on the product ever since. So I've been a pro wrestling fan before, but at that point, I jumped in with NJPW. Haven't looked back since. And looked for podcasts to help. Uh, obviously, there was the stuff that you were doing, and another podcast that was great was the New Japan Purecast, which was David McDonald and Colin Miller. And I was listening to that, well, it must have been a year and a half when that finished, because, well, for various reasons, Colin had other commitments, and there was a spot for a New Japan Pro Wrestling podcast on Voices of Wrestling. And at that point, I had visited Tokyo. I went to Wrestle Kingdom 12 because I was obviously I was a big fan of the product. Watched the Naito Okada match where Naito suffered his infamous defeat, and I enjoyed that. So not enjoyed the defeat, but I was so 
affected, so moved by the, the plight of NITA that I decided to write a little piece on that, which I sent to Voices of Wrestling. And then I don't know if you were aware of this, but then Dave Meltzer had just read their headline of it, which was the tragedy of Tetsuya Naito. Didn't bother to read the piece and then just did like a quote retweet saying, just dunking on it basically saying, oh yeah, a guy helping to almost sell out the biggest wrestling kingdom in history. That's a real tragedy. And then there were a load of people in the reply saying, no, Dave, it's a, a kayfabe piece. You've got to read it because I was just talking about Tetsuya Naito, the character and how it was tragic for him to reach that point, get to the main event, but blow it in the big stage. So that sort of got me in with Voices Wrestling. And then when Colin decided he didn't want to do the podcast anymore, I expressed an interest in doing a New Japan podcast. Damon still wanted to do something. So Rich Kreich put us in touch with each other. And we've never looked back since. We've got a really fun little podcast going where we talk about cats and crisps and occasionally New Japan Pro Wrestling. And, and music. So, you know, Damon was a guest on uh, a previous episode of Cruel Summer, and uh, we, we talked about music, because he and I actually like very similar in age, and, and in our music tastes are very, very similar, so we were talking about that. If, for those of you who've listened to that particular episode, uh, you will be very familiar about the, the, the in-depth discussion about Spandau Ballet and, and Duran Duran on that episode, but we, Joel and I will not be talking about any music on, on this particular oh, I know, episode. and I listened to that episode, and you're right, I do feel bad every time Damon talks about music, and I just have to totally no-sell him, because I've got no knowledge or interest in the music that he's talking about, so I just wait for him to finish, and I'm like, okay, let's move back on to New Japan then. Yeah, but I mean, the, the other thing is, as I as I said on that particular episode, I was like, well, you know, oh, you go on... Bearing Shenmue again. Yeah, you, you're, you're, uh, no, I'm not going to bury Shenmue, but like, it, was a, it was a joke, obviously. It's a running theme with me being on post-wrestling. <laughs> well, getting buried about Shenmue. Yeah. I, I, I can't recall the, the episode, like, you, you obviously are referring to, like, the episode of Eggshells that you did. Did, did Chris bury you about that game? Yeah, he did. He's not a fan of Shenmue, so it looks like I'm on an island there. Oh, I but Shenmue 3's coming, everyone. It's going to be great. I, I think uh, I think Rich Critch is a big fan of uh, Shenmue, isn't he? He is, yeah. I, I think it's just the two of us then. Just, just the two of you, okay. I might check it out. I my friend let uh, let me a copy of I think like two or three, and it was all in Japanese. There was like no English support for that. Like, and my PS three or four is like set to English, but it's all in Japanese. So I was like, okay, I'll just try it a bit. It looked interesting. If I find an English version of one of those games in, in English, like a North American copy, I'll, I'll try to pick it up. Which one do you recommend for me, Joel? I think you have to play one. You have to start with Shenmue 1. And you can get that. I know it's on the PlayStation Store. They remastered it. And it's a game you've got to take your time with it and immerse yourself in the world of 1987 suburban Tokyo and appreciate the little details and just really uh, the ambience of being in that world. Cause if you're sort of rushing through it, looking for the action, then you're not going to have a good time. So it's, 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 uh, it's very, you know, immersive about the story of, of these characters that are in Shenmue then. Not even the story so much. It's just, it really feels like you're walking around uh, suburban Japan in 1987. Not that I know what it was like, but it kind of gave me a good feel for it. Uh, you know, the shops, all the people going about their daily routines, buying the little gashapon toys, going to the arcades, just the little touches like that. It just made it feel very real and lived in. Okay. You've got me intrigued. So I, I will say that uh, your your passion for the game has got me intrigued. And 
these details that you've just related to me right now, I'm okay. I, I will check out the PlayStation Store and I'll and I'll give a report on Twitter if I if I bought it, if I started playing it, and, and my feelings about it. And then maybe I will join you and Rich on the Shenmue Island in in uh, video game fandom there. But uh, we can do a podcast. We can, we can do a special podcast. Sure, no no problem. Because there's not enough podcasts in the world, WH. Well, not about wrestling or video games. It seems you know, like, uh, but yeah, I don't know who's gonna host that. Uh, unless you're going to start your own Patreon, and then video game podcasting is going to be part of that in the future. Well, I know Krach has got the uh, he's got a little show called Squashing Buttons that he's got on the Voices Wrestling Patreon. But if I'm not getting money from that, I'm not doing that. So <laughs> we've got to find some way that lines my pockets too. That's another thing I like about like the Super J Cast is how you try to monotonize everything. It's uh, I I I might the entrepreneurial spirit that exists in me is is. Deep in admiration about that part of the show. Yeah, do you, do you want to know how much money we made collectively last month? No, no, please tell me if you're willing to share that information. Five dollars and sixty cents. Tremendous. I I make no money from doing any podcasting for for uh, post wrestling, but I don't do it for the money. I do it for the love of you know of wrestling, of talking, hearing my own voice on air. And talking with John Pollock and waiting sometimes and the various guests that have been on this particular uh, series. But you know, speaking of Cruel Summer, we should talk about our, our main topic, which is the 2007 G1 Climax Tournament Final. But before we get to the finals, we have to talk about the tournament itself. So let me give a bit of a background on this. The 2007 G1 Climax was a two-block, 12-man round-robin tournament held from August 5th to August 12th and like Joe it's really interesting I say it's a 12th man round robin tournament and this year 2019 people were saying maybe this year is going to be a 24 man uh, tournament but it's not it's still a 20 man tournament but it's it, does it make you feel like how do, how do how do you feel when you hear like in the past like not even like that long ago that it was it was a very much smaller tournament in terms of the scale of the the tour itself and the number of participants in it yeah, it just feels like a different world. And even something as small as you look at the participants, you think, oh, uh, these two names sound like they'd be an interesting matchup. I'm going to go on NJPW World and check it out. And there's just nothing there apart from the final. If you want to watch one of those block matches, forget it. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to talk about like the you know the some of the stories that go into these matches if you don't have the context of of watching the semifinals or maybe a block match that happened like two days before in like Nagoya or Osaka or something. But, you know, like, thankfully I have, you know, wonderful co-hosts joining me on this who have, who can enrich us about the, the history of these, these matches because they have actually, you know, the Samurai TV version or the Asahi TV version on, on videotape or on, on DVD back when like that people were trading those and like before really the advent of, of file sharing on the internet. Uh, but we're talking about the participants. Let's look at the A block. And in the A block, we have Togi Makabe, Yuji Nagata, Akibono, who's uh, kind of working freelance at this point in his career, but he's doing quite a bit of stuff with uh, New Japan at this time. Uh, Giant Bernard, Hiroyoshi Tenzan, and Masahiro Chono. And this would be his last G1. Uh, following uh, that in the B block, we have Shizuke Nakamura, Hiroshi Tanahashi, Toriyano, uh, Shiro Koshinaka, and this would be his last G1 as well. Uh, Milano Collection AT, 
uh, he, he entered into the G1 as a junior heavyweight, and this would be his only appearance in the tournament. And finally, we have Manabu Nakanishi. And what do you think about this collection of names in this uh, in these two blocks, Joel? There's a lot of big names there. A lot of people who went on to have great career story G1 runs. And, and I suspect a lot of these are before they reach their current iterations of their gimmicks. Like when you say Toriano, that's probably not the kind of Toriano that you and I might think of today, correct? I, I don't. Th- I think he's a little bit more serious. He was, I think his g- gimmick or character at the time was more along the lines of like, you know, dastardly hero. Kind of like, he was kind of like Tai Chi before there was Tai Chi in New Japan. And, you know, one of the things I love about going back and watching these old matches is like seeing who's like seconding people, you know, like in this match, it's like who's seconding Nagata. It's like Naito and Yujiro Takahashi. And the, the 2007 versions of these guys look nothing like their 2019 versions. So it's always a treat for me to, to, to like see the young boys who are the young lions in New Japan in, in the past. Yeah, and some of them are sometimes almost unrecognizable. You know, who's that? And then you, it suddenly doors and you hear it is. You're like, oh my god! Like without the haircut or the costume or whatever, they can look totally different. And I want to briefly mention one point here. So we have like Milano Collection AT in this, and he's he's a junior heavyweight. And there's been you know there was like talk you know a couple of years ago like why isn't Kushida a junior heavyweight? who's like the, you know, he's kind of the ace of the junior division. Why isn't he allowed to go into the G1? I always felt like, like that size is not necessarily, a, a, you know, like a barrier to enter the G1 because you've had like Liger in it. You had Milano Collection AT. You had like Minoru Tanaka. You had people like uh, Tatsuhiro Takaiwa, who was a New Japan guy. He went to zero one, but then he, you know, he appeared in the G1 as well. And none of these guys are huge. And, but I don't think any of them were hurt like by not, you know, getting a lot of points, but their participation in it, I think, made the you know the the tournament more interesting. Where do you stand on like specifically like that? Kushida never got to wrestle in the G one. I think that is could be looked upon as a missed opportunity, but for me, it just comes down to a question of credibility. And if you look at the juniors who've been put it this year, Osprey has already been having matches, and he's got wins against heavyweights so he's already positioned himself as an open weight shingo obviously has got a, an amazing career in dragon gate so he's had matches against heavyweights and huge title reigns whereas kushida never really had that he wasn't the kind of wrestler who was given the opportunity to dabble in the open weight thing this seems in new japan a relatively new thing so it's a shame that kushida never got that chance but uh, i think he wasn't built up as an open weight the same way that osprey and shingo have okay I, I'm I'm of the mindset that it would have been interesting, and the way he wrestled could have carried him to a, you know, some key wins. But I I'm not gonna, you know, like if people make that argument against his participation, I can see that point as well. Uh, moving on, let's talk about our two f- uh, finalists, Yuji Nagata and Hiroshi Tan- uh, Hiro- Hiroshi Tanahashi. I was only going to call him Tenzan, but let's talk. Let's play the age game on on at this point of the show, Joel. How old do you think? Yuji Nagata is in 2007. Uh, let's say 40. Close. He's 39. And how about uh, Tanahashi? 30. 30. Correct. You're very good at this. Yes. So Nagata is 39. Tanahashi is 30. And at this point, like in his career, Tanahashi really is c- coming into his own as a single star. And he, you know, he's just 
just you know inches away from getting that main push into the stratosphere that he would eventually rise into and and kind of occupy for the last you know 10 to 15 years um can I ask you a question? Sorry yes. to interrupt, but is, no. you, is it fair to say that Tan actually rose to stardom after he no-sold getting stabbed twice in 2002 by Hitomi Hara? Um, that definitely helped him because it became such mainstream news that like he he survived this like legit real-life attack of stabbing. And uh, you know the, the the big thing was like that the doctor said like if he wasn't such if he didn't have such mu- such a great amount of muscle mass in his chest area that he probably would have died. So like those pectorals that he has, they, he's never getting rid of them because they're like his lifesaver. They, they they like are what they're reason why he has children and is alive to this day and and has all these fabulous hairstyles throughout the years, Joel. Well, thank God for Tanner's tits. That's all that's, I can say. There you go. Yes. Uh, let's let's move on to uh, how each guy got into the finals. So Nagata's path, he beat Giant Bernard, he beat Tenzan, and he beat Akibono. He lost to uh, Chono and Makabe. Uh, Tanahashi's path, he beat uh, Koshinaka and Milano Collection AT. He loses to Nakanishi, and he draws with uh, Nakamura, and he went to a double countout with Toriyano. So even at, in 2007, Toriyano is like, you know, kind of acting as the spoiler in the G1 Climax. It would be a sign of things to come for this year's G1 Climax. I mean, any chance of him edging out guys like John Moxley and Tetsuya Naito and Jay White to win that B block? Usually, but he's like, you know, rolling people up after low blowing them. I, I can't recall too many countouts that he's had, I, you know, but my memory is shit. So, I don't know, like, usually it's, these, it's the, the Toriano special, like the roll-ups after the Lobo, isn't it? My favorite one was a couple of years ago where he got Michael Elgin disqualified for simulating a, a dick punch. And of course, to get disqualified in New Japan, you, you've got to do something really atrocious. So that one uh, was particularly amusing. I think my favorite one, oh, who, I think who, who he got, he taped, who, usually when he tapes people to the outside. Yeah, he did that whole thing with Kenny, didn't he, back in 2017? Yeah, that was good. That's, Probably like my favorite like G1 climax matches with Yano usually involved Kenny Omega. I, I thought they had really excellent chemistry. You know what's funny is that I, I think Kenny Omega has better chemistry with Toriano than he does with uh, Minoru Suzuki. Uh yeah. yeah, I definitely remember that Omega Suzuki match at the start of the twenty seventeen G one being a bit disappointing. But yeah, I think Yano uh, underrated wrestler. Yes, definitely. I, I think it takes like a lot of skill to be a good comedic wrestler who's not exposing wrestling do you know what i mean like there's a lot of wrestlers who are, do comedy but they just like you know wink wink nudge nudge haha whereas i think yano kind of you know is really good at you know uh, straddling that line as it were yeah so i guess you look at guys like joey ryan orange cassidy who quote-unquote break kayfabe but yano is a guy who does the comedy stuff but within the the realm of pro wrestling yeah, him and like Taguchi as well, I think are really, really good at that. Um, let's talk about the uh, the final kind of like uh, challenges each man had to get into the final. So this is a time when the G1 Climax had semifinals. And I, I kind of want to get your thoughts about the idea of having semifinals that lead into the finals on the, the last show of the tour. You kind of have them these days with the way they do the scheduling. So you can look at 
what the lineup's going to be for those final block days at Budokan. And you look at that, even though they're not giving you a match order, you look at that and you know that Okada Ibushi is going to be your block A, quote-unquote semi-final, and then block B is going to be Naito versus Jay White. So you kind of still have that, but within the still the, the league system of the G1. Don't you think that kind of spoils like the results of the, the, the rest of the tournament, though? To an extent, but I don't think there's anyone looking at that thinking, oh, I really thought Jeff Cobb was going to make it through this time. So even with them giving you those announced matches, there's still room for lots of speculation and permutations and fantasy booking for how you think things are going to play out there. You could, you know, are the, the two guys in the main event going to go to a time limit draw? So someone from lower down on the card manages to sneak their way through as happened in 2016 with Goto. So yeah, I, I still think there's enough room to speculate and enjoy the uncertainty of the event. Yeah. I kind of, I don't mind the way they do it now, but I, I do kind of miss the, the drama of the semifinals. And one thing I like about having semifinals, I think it really like adds to the prestige of the final night. As Whereas like recently, like G1 Climax tournament finals, like in Sumo Hall and, and like last year in Budokan Hall, I, I felt that there was a lot of filler that just I just was not interested in at all. And I just wanted to, you know, thought, well, you should pad these out a bit more. Like, I know it doesn't need it. Usually the G1 Finals in of itself is going to sell out where the venue, wherever it's being held. But I don't know. I kind of like this idea of like, okay, let's have the semifinals start the show. We'll have like two matches, two or three matches to give these guys a rest. And then we'll have the finals. To me, that that's like, as, as a fan of like cards, like, entire shows i i kind of would like to see that again but you you have a good point i think that's why they have these like three nights where they go okay this this match this headlining match is going to be the de facto semi-final for a and the next night is going to be the de facto headliner uh, semi-final for for b block but let's talk about uh yuji nagata in his semi-finals he took on shinsuke nakamura and of course defeated him and uh tanahashi beat uh Toki Makabe in his semifinals, and which leads us, of course, to the the G1 Climax Tournament final for 2007, Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Yuji Nagata. And so, as we fire up New Japan World, we see that Yuji Nagata is already in the ring. He's not worthy of showing his entrance to to the ring on New Japan World. But then we see Tanahashi coming out, and uh, so nice to hear uh, high energy, you know, accompanying. Hiroshi Tanahashi to the ring. I have to say, Joel, like, you know, high energy, so much better than his current theme song, in my estimation. Yeah, I knew that was going to come up. So I had that in my notes, actually. I was going to ask what your thoughts were on the great Tanahashi music debate. Before we get into the match itself, I do want to talk a bit about both guys and Nagata specifically, because, like you say, I started up this video file and he's in the ring like a local jobber. So Nagata is, a, is an interesting story, really. It's a guy who's started challenging for the IWGP championship late 1998 after his WCW run challenged Scott Norton, but he lost. And he really should, should have been one of the biggest stars in the company's history, but he wasn't because of, and don't at me, Inokiism. Well, I'm sure this is something you're going to talk about on your, your 2001 episodes. And obviously this Inokius thing is trying to capitalize on the popularity of M- MMA. So, you know, he felt, you know, all of his stars have got to be legit shoot fighters. And yeah, you've talked about that in depth already, but it's hard 
not to look back on Nagata's career and think of the missed opportunities because he's had that weird fighting club G eggs stable with Nakanishi, Masakazu Fukudo, Yutaka Yoshi and Brian Johnson. That didn't end well. And then, of course, his MMA career that lasted a combined 83 seconds. <laughs> you go back and look at it. It's remarkable how he was pitted against two of the greatest MMA heavyweights of all time. Prokop in 2001 and Fedor in 2003 in the Inoki Bombay events. And poor Yuji, he didn't stand a chance. So that's what I mean when I say he's the biggest casualty of Inokiism. It's hard to be viewed as a top star when you've been destroyed in shoot fights. I mean, look, they put him in the main event of the Tokyo Dome against Josh Barnett in Barnett's first pro wrestling match, for crying out loud. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. I, I tend to look at Yuji Nagata's career as a pre, you know, Krokop and post crow cop but you know to his credit he he salvaged what he could of his of his legacy his career and he you know at before tanahashi he was you know the guy in new japan like he, they pushed him to the moon he had the record i believe for the most defenses you know he beat shinya hashimoto's uh, you know like records and so they really even with these losses like the the bookers of New Japan, including like, you know, the Inoki office still wanted to push him really hard. I think the problem with his reign comes in the form of Kazuki Fujita, who they also pushed really hard and they kind of believed in him more because they thought of him as a more legit wrestler, even though like, and don't at me as well. Like he's an inferior wrestler compared to Yuji Nagata because I think he's too like, you know, enamored with trying to like beat people up which is not necessarily a bad thing in professional wrestling if you're stiff, if you're like trying to be realistic, but he wouldn't give anything to a lot of the, his opponents except for Yuji Nagata, who he was good friends with. And I would say like their matches for the IWGP title is, are some of the, the best matches you're going to see for that belt. And definitely like Yuji Nagata, you know, took... Fujita to his best matches and like, you know, Fujita provided Niji Nagata for some of his best matches as well. So I, I don't think of it as so much as like, not, not doom and gloom, but like it, it was a, it was like a terrible tragedy that he never recovered from. I think Nagata acquitted himself really well in, in, in spite of those losses to Emlianko and to like, you know, Krokop, but you know, he, he's a legend. Like people love him. I think they appreciate like what he meant to the company in those dark days of the Enoki office in New Japan. Yeah, and like you say, he did bounce back well from that. But after that record-setting reign in 0203, there wasn't that much on his plate. I mean, he set up another stable. There was the Team Japan thing with the amateur wrestlers. I think he challenged Lesnar for the title unsuccessfully. And so coming up to this match, he he did win the IWGP title from Tanahashi in April 2007, I think. But again, you, you do get the feeling that you're watching someone here with his best years behind him. Because after this point, Nagata, he was pretty much done as a big-time main event title challenge in New Japan. I know he spent a couple of years feuding over the Zero One title. He formed another wacky stable. It was the, the Segigun, the Blue Justice Army, with um, Inoue, uh, the, the future captain New Japan, Mitsuhiro Hirasawa, and Super Strong Machine. And he won the 2011 New Japan Cup and then lost the challenge to Tanahashi. Now, interestingly, I've done my homework here. Uh, Nagata won the 2011 All Japan Champion Carnival. Do you know who he beat in the final? Who did he beat? I'm trying to remember. Uh, did he beat... Uh, was it Minoru Suzuki? 
It is a guy who is in this year's G1. He's in this year's G1. Okay, so it would be uh-huh. in all Japan. Uh, was it? I'm trying to think. Who's in? I can't. My memory is not serving me well tonight. Who is it, Joel? It was one Seiya Sanada. Ah. So there's an interesting little factoid for you. Unsuccessfully challenged for the title again in December, again against Tanahashi. And then he also won the Pro Wrestling NOAA 2013 Global League. And I think he's the only wrestler to win the G1, the Champion Carnival, and the Global League. But he lost his shot against the GHC champion. Do you know who that was? Is he in the, is he in the G1 this year too? He is. <laughs> who was the GHC champion? My memory is. Sure, is that Kent? It wasn't Kent, uh, was it? It was Kenta, yeah. Was I was going to say. Okay. You keep saying, yes, it was Kenta. So yeah, uh, basically, like looking at Nagata at this point, his this six-month reign that he had with the IWGP title turned out to be his last. Whereas Tanahashi, on the other hand, he's coming off the back of his first of eight reigns. So this match is interesting. It feels like a passing of the torch. Um, my point is basically Nagata got fucked over royally by Nokiaism, but he managed to recover. He showed tremendous loyalty to stick with New Japan and be the face of the company during its dark days. So those are my thoughts on Nagata. Well, he was the GHC champion at some point, you know, and he's also held the, you know, you know, it's funny, like it's, you can almost make an argument that for us, like Noah used Yuji Nagata and treated him with a lot more respect post his, like, you know, his, uh, his first title reign with the IWGP title. Like he, and interestingly enough, his tag team partner with the GHC titles was Hiroshi Tanahashi. And that, I, you know, that's one of those teams that I wish we had more footage of. And I wish they, they kind of held those titles a little longer. Cause I thought that was a really, really good team. And they had excellent chemistry together as, as partners, but we should move on to the match itself. But I, I don't want you to think that I'm not appreciating all this history. It's amazing. Please keep it up. That's what all the listeners want to hear is like all this background information that God, I've got providing. more WH. You're in luck. I've got some uh, stuff on Tanahashi as well. You, I've got well, great respect for the cross summer podcast. I did my homework. I wanted to come in, bringing the knowledge to the table. That's awesome. Why, why don't we like kind of mix it in? Let's, let's get into the match itself. And then at some point where you feel like this is where I'm going to drop all my Tanahashi knowledge. That's, that's fine. Yeah. I'll, I'll hit you at the end of the match. Maybe. Sure. Well, whatever you feel like, Joe, no, no problem. Uh, we talked about, like, so Yujiro and Na- Naito are in Nagata's corner, but in Tanahashi's corner is the aforementioned Mitsuhide Hirasawa, the future Captain Japan, the future original Bone Soldier. Not as good as the current Bone Soldier. And it's kind of interesting to see, like, obviously these two are really, really good friends because, like, he's always been aligned with Hiroshi Tanahashi, whereas, like, you know, he tried that weird like wild man gimmick after he came back from Puerto Rico, it went nowhere. And then they just made him captain in Japan. He just became like the pin eater with Tanahashi in, in all the multi-man tag matches that they'd be in together. Um, we, we look at, uh, you know, the, the ring, we see Nagata and Tanahashi squaring off and there's a big Nagata call from the fans, mainly for men. Like you don't really hear too many women calling for Nagata. They're mainly saving themselves and their energy for for cheering for hiroshi tanahashi it's a very much like kind of like if you want to use a a wwe analogy like tanahashi is kind of like the john cena of of new japan in in the sense that he mainly to women and and kids later in the match there's a a crescendo of shrill squeals from the audience as tanahashi's building to the dragon suplex so yeah it was really noticeable during this match yeah so uh we get a shot of the commentary team which includes Masahiro Chono, uh, I guess you know he 
he thought, okay, I, I'm not in the finals anymore. I'm never getting to the finals again, so I'll just uh, give commentary. He, he does this a lot, though. Like, they always call upon Chono to do some commentary with, uh, you know, the end of the G1. Yeah, uh, so it's interesting going through this backlog of uh, G1 finals where, obviously, Masahiro Chono was Mr. G1. So seeing him sort of gradually transition from being a guy who's in the ring winning all these g1 climaxes to then seeing him ringside with his sunglasses on being the man on commentary yeah uh you know i mean i think it's probably the best thing that happened to him because like his last kind of forays into the into g1 especially the finals were were not good which you can hear all about those particular matches on previous episodes of cruel summer uh so we start the match with each man jockeying for an advantage over another with a lot of grappling it really starts kind of this kind of a grapple fuck match at the beginning which is not something you really see from tanahashi anymore yeah i think it speaks to something yeah he doesn't do it so much these days but the the wrestling skills the technical wrestling skills of both guys in the ring so that was an unexpected little treat there yeah nagata takes early control with a series of stiff kicks including one to tanahashi's back that forces him to the outside uh nagata follows him out and attempts a suplex but tanahashi turns it into his uh rolling neck breaker and then uh you know he uh, tanahashi hits a dragon screw leg whip to nagata between the ropes and follows up with a high fly flow from the second rope to Nagata while Nagata is on the floor outside the ring. Uh, And I got to say, he's probably never going to do that move ever again. I don't know if he's attempted it since this particular match, Joel. Well, the big thing about this, you notice that he absolutely smashes his elbow on the concrete when he does this. And then from that point onwards, his elbow is just pissing blood. So really, if you go back and watch it, you see his elbow just bounce back off the floor and it, it's really painful to watch and he's clutching his elbow it just like a really nasty injury yeah it's like I, I we i don't know if like there's a muda scale for the elbow there's a muda scale for the forehead i don't know if there's one for the elbow maybe this is the tanahashi scale for like a cut on one's like you know one a person's limb rather than their head we'll have to research that in the future uh also just quick question the high fly flow that was like a relatively new finisher for tanahashi at this point wasn't it I believe so, yeah. It's like he's not really... Oh, I can't remember what his finisher was before. Because, like, you know, everyone thinks high fly flow when they think about Tanahashi's finishers. But uh, he's not using it as his finisher, like, in like in the sense of, like, saving it, per se. He used it in this match to kind of weaken Nagata. But, I mean, it, it, he's, he's doing it from the second row to the floor. So, I mean, it's got a lot of impact. And, obviously, it fucked up his elbow. Um yeah, I, I can't remember. I think was maybe it was a dragon dragon suplex into a bridge that was one of his finishers at the time. It's hard to catalog every move that he has unless you watch like maybe the twenty five greatest moves of Hiroshi Tanahashi on YouTube. Which unfortunately, I'm sorry to all the listeners, I did not do before uh, recording this. Well, you, you've let us down and you've let yourself down, WH. I'm, I'm hanging my head in shame here. Uh, going back to the match, um, Tanahashi drags Nagata back into the ring uh, backwards and then drapes him over the top rope with a dragon sleeper and hits the final cut on him. And this final version of the final cut looks way better than what he used against Chase Owens at uh, Dominion. Like that, that one looked like complete shit. And we can say that because you and I were there live at Osaka Jahal to see 
that horrible version of the final cut from Tanahashi. Yeah, that was a bit worrying, wasn't it? Especially going into a big G1 this year. You watch that and you're kind of thinking, oh, can he can he still go? Hopefully he makes a complete fool out of me by the end of it. But yeah, I was sweating for a bit seeing that much. Yeah, then uh, he does this really interesting variation of the Dragon Sleeper using a hammerlock. And then he turns that into uh, the final cut, another version of the final cut. So maybe he needs to bring the hammerlock into the equation in 2019 to make it look more effective, Joel. Yeah, definitely. I think he could learn a thing or two from his uh, his uh, 12-year-ago self. Or he can start listening to this podcast and, 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 and gain a lot of knowledge on how to like make his, fin- his new finishers look even better by listening to you and I critique his moveset like, based on our experience of watching him live doing it and just shitting the bed. On, on that move, but I don't want to. I don't want to bury Tanahashi. He is one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. Uh, Tanahashi goes to the top and delivers a missile drop kick, knocking uh, Nagata back down. He follows up with an enziguri and then a G- German suplex for a two count. He then starts slapping Nagata really hard in the face, which uh, really dazes Nagata. Like he, I think, like Tanahashi is underrated as a f- uh, face slapper. In, in, oh, it was so great. You can see the sweat flying off them. They they did that in their 2017 G1 match, and Tanahashi hit Nagata so hard that he made his face bleed. Definitely, like, he's up there with, you know, your Nagatas, your Jinakiyamas, your Minoru Suzuki's as far as just slapping someone really hard in the face. I think he takes it easy now with some with most people, but, like, with Nagata, maybe he has permission. Just hit me really hard, Tana. It's no problem. And then he's, okay, okay, Yuji-san, I'll, I'll, I'll do that for you. Just... Make your face bleed. Uh, Tanashi goes for a sling blade, but Nagata reverses it into a Saido suplex, a big one. I thought, wow, his neck's got to hurt at this point from that move. Uh, Nagata follows up with the running knee to the face while uh, Tanahashi is propped in the corner, one of Nagata's signature moves. Uh, Nagata then puts Tanahashi on the top turnbuckle and hits an exploder suplex. Uh, Tanashi gets up. He no-sells this. But Nagata uh, caves in Tanahashi's chest with a massive kick for a 2.5 count. Um, I love those kicks. I, watching this, you forget how great Nagata is because we don't see him much these days, but he's just the ultimate badass dad. Like earlier in the match when he's shouting Tanahashi's name and then kicks him in the face. I mean, even his facial expression, he's got this glint in his eye like, I'm, I'm going to school this punk. And yeah, the, the forearms as well, they look so stiff. They've got real snap to them and the kicks... Like you said, they've just got such a satisfying, meaty sound. It's like a baseball bat hitting a side of beef. It just sounds great. I really think like this era of Nagata is probably maybe my favorite version of of him. With like he's just like he's 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 got the you know the the, the experience of being the champion, headlining headlining big shows and and carrying the cup in his back. So he just like okay, I'm now the gatekeeper. And this guy, Tanahashi, is going to, you know, take, he's taking my spot, but he's not taking it easily. I'm going to kick the shit out of him. And that's exactly what he did in this match. Uh, he then follows up that massive kick with a Shinya Hashimoto style vertical brain buster and goes for the Nagata lock too. But uh, fortunately for Tanahashi, he gets his foot on the rope. From there, Nagata hits another Saito suplex for another 2.5. And these are beautiful. I, I love Yuji Nagata's Saito suplexes, Joel. Yeah, just amazing stuff. And you see kind of shades of it these days when you watch someone like Jay White and the way he sets them up. But just it was just a master at work here. And what worked for me about this match is that 
it was interesting when either guy was in control. And that's not always the case with big matches. And particularly with Nagata and the transitions, the transitions were so good. Like I said, it's two very technically proficient wrestlers. And even the submissions, Nagata's submissions, they look genuinely painful. Like when he's cranking that cross face, he really looks like he's crushing Tanahashi's lovely face. And you can see Tana's elbow bloodied up and some of the blood splattered over Nagata's chest, which is really nice touch. It's always good when you get a, a bit of accidental blood in a match. Yeah, so we we're, we're at the point where, where they're having the slap battle that you referenced, and uh, Nagato knocks Tanahashi down in the, in that particular exchange, and Nagato goes for a, a boot to the face, but Tanahashi is able to catch him with an abdominal stretch, and he turns it into a cradle for for a nice two count here, and again, like Tanahashi just showing off his excellent technical wrestling skills here. Yeah, and just drawing it into the story of the match as a whole, so. Like you mentioned, it's a really nice story. The champion who has experience winning this tournament against a young guy who previously fallen at the last hurdle in the G1. And you start to see Tanahashi in more of his superstar aura compared to his performances in previous years, especially if you compare the 2004 uh, G1 final with Tenzan. Yeah, definitely. I, I, it's, it's really, really interesting to see kind of the evolution of, of uh, Tanahashi here uh, getting back to the match we see that both men are absolutely exhausted at this point uh, Tanishi, Tanahashi gets up he hits a sling blade and then he uses an urinage and then with a big one like I, I, I was like wow you don't really see Tanahashi using an urinage uh, he then goes to the top and hits the high fly flow for the one two two point five oh and then I, I believe red shoes is the uh, the ref for here and he's he's not the red shoes that I come to despise from like i say 2015 on he's a red shoes that i can tolerate at this point in 2007 joel yeah again that was something i wanted to ask you about because i noticed with this he leaps over both wrestlers when he's going counting that pin off the second high fly flow so what is it about this red shoes and modern day red shoes that what's he doing these days that's really upsetting you uh he's he's acting as a referee like he does a lot of like, you know, like he does a lot of his uh, shaking his head. No, 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 don't do that. Don't cheat. Wait. He wags his finger a lot. He puts his hands on his hips. It it, it comes across that he's pretending he's a referee instead of actually being a referee. Whereas in 2007, he's actually being a referee and not giving so much, you know, like, I don't know, like credence to, to thinking I, I have to make this my performance more dramatic. That's what I think bothers me about current Red Shizuno is that I feel he's performing instead of being. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so maybe he should go listen to this podcast as well. Definitely, definitely. He he probably hates me. I, I, I think I got a lot of heat in that locker room with like a lot of the foreign wrestlers. So they might say, hey, Red Shiz, this guy bears you every day on, every month on uh, post-wrestling. He's probably like, fuck that guy about me. I, I'm sure I get that a lot. You know, my I, maybe I'm overestimating my importance in 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 wrestling locker rooms. I probably except for the ROH one. I definitely know people hate me there. But anyways, uh, big Nagata call starts up again, and the the crowd is just absolutely electric for Nagata. Uh, we do hear like you know the the calls for Tanahashi, but they're being drowned out by the predominantly male audience in 2007 New Japan Pro Wrestling. Uh, Tanahashi goes for the driving dragon suplex, but. Nagata reverses for his third Saito suplex for a one, two, two point seven five. It's a, it's this is like I think we're now at the crescendo uh, part of this match, Joel. Yeah, and um, I mean, 
I guess I'll talk more about when we get to the finish of this match. It, it does seem to be paced a little bit differently to how modern day New Japan main events are in as much as I was expecting from this point on, like another five minutes or so. Okay, from here, uh, Nagata hits Tanahashi with his with big knees, and he goes for another uh, big kick, but Tanahashi catches his leg and hits a big dragon screw leg whip, and then uh, four more. So he hits him with five dragon screw leg whips, paying homage to one of his uh, his mentors, Kijimuto, in this match. Uh, I felt like I was watching actually like a, a re a recreation of uh, Shinya Hashimoto versus Kijimuto match with these two in the ring, Joel. Yeah, and it also reminded me a bit of the Wrestle Kingdom 3 main event with Tanahashi against Keiji Muto, where there was just dragon screw leg whips all over the shot there. Yeah, so from here, uh, uh, Tanahashi hits a straight jacket German for a big two count, a dragon suplex for a big two count. He goes to the top rope, and why don't we talk, why don't you take it over from here? So what happens when he gets to the top rope? He does a high fly flow and wins the match. <laughs> Correct for a one, two, and a three count. He beats Yuji Nagata at a time of 19 minutes and two seconds with his signature move, the high fly flow. Not the one from the second rope to to the outside, but from the top rope to the middle of the ring. And this is this marks uh, Tanahashi's first G1 climax win. How many has he won since, including up to like last year? Uh, I don't know. Is it three? I don't know. Actually, I, I was I was hoping you did. I thought you. Were I thought this was part of the quiz. <laughs> no, no, no. I thought this was. I thought you did your your research for this stuff. All right, I'll have to I'll have to check. But uh, while I'm doing that, I just the the dragon screw things. That was something that I found a little bit confusing because I thought it was going to play into something later in the match. And even when it finished, like I really like how Tanahashi sold his joy at winning the match. He was like on his knees, like yeah, he looked really happy that he'd won it. But like I said, I was expecting to go a bit longer. I mean, I guess that speaks more to the way that I've been conditioned by modern New Japan main event style. And also it was less than halfway through the video because the video is like 43 minutes. And by the time this match ended, it was like 21. So I thought it was going to go a lot longer. And to me, it a really good match. But it felt like it was building towards something truly epic. But then it just finished really abruptly with another high fly flow. So it was a shame that there wasn't any payoff to the leg work. And I don't think Nagata, he didn't really come close to winning, but still really enjoyable match. I'll give it a, a solid four stars. Yeah, I I think... This is like for me historically for Tanahashi's career the point where they they know that we can trust this guy. They know that okay, we're going to push him to the moon. He's going to be our flag bearer for the foreseeable future. And I think also with this win over Nagata, who was the previous ace of the company, that the fans know that this guy, not Nakamura, not Makabe, not anyone else, is going to be the guy. In the company, and they're all aboard for this. And one thing I thought was really cool was, you know, uh, after the match, we see this great shot of of a defeated Yuji Nagata outside the ring, and he's looking inside the ring at Tanahashi, and they're and vice versa, they're both looking at each other. And I just thought this is a promise of more matches in the future, which they would have, but I, I don't think they ever. I don't know if I can't really recall, you know, without you know going back and watching matches that if they ever had a match as uh, as great that exceeded this. I think this is one of their best matches, you know, in their history together. Yeah. And it was interesting what you mentioned about the way that Tanahashi was presented here. Cause 
it's a guy very much on the right. So we know that he made the G1 finals in 2004. Again, I'm sure you talked plenty about this and won his first IWGP title in July. And he beat Giant Bernard in the finals of the tournament after Brock Lesnar infamously no-showed the match with Tanahashi. So he had his nine-month reign and then lost the title to Nagata following Nagata's New Japan Cup win, which set the table really nicely for this G1 final match because it also just so happens to be the first G1 under Gado's reign as the booker. So Tanahashi did have two reigns with the IWGP Under-30 Openweight Championship, but after he won the IWGP Heavyweight Championship, that belt disappeared. So a lot of people saw him as the next logical successor, even before Gado took over, and Gado smartly decided to ride that momentum. So if you look at this year, if you look at 2007 in isolation, it's a formative year for Tanahashi because we got the first ever Wrestle Kingdom, and Tana defends the IWGP title against Tayo Kia, and Nagata lost a triple crown, triple crown championship match to Suzuki. So, yeah, like I said, Nagata won the New Japan Cup. He's the first guy to win that and the G1. Beat Tanahashi to win the IWGP title in April. And it's a really interesting match to talk about this G1 final because I think, as you, you mentioned, Tanahashi owes a lot to Yuji Nagata because even at this point, they have a lot of history, particularly in the New Japan Cup. Uh, 2005, Tanahashi beat Nagata by disqualification in the first round. Then in 2006, Nagata beat Tanahashi in the semi. So we look at 2007, and this trilogy with Nagata, I think, really helped Tanahashi get over an initial hump because he wasn't really accepted at first. New Japan was at an all-time low following that Lesnar debacle. And I think a lot of people looked at Tanahashi as a bit of a pretty boy, didn't deserve to be the champion. And even if you start with a match where he dropped the title to Nagata prior to this one, there's like less than half a house in the Osaka Prefecture Gymnasium. But if you take that match and then this G1 match that we discussed and then the subsequent rematch in October, I think this that trilogy really helped to set Tanahashi on the path to stardom. And really like, you know, and as a result, like New Japan's kind of financial uh, financial year and like, you know, their finances and their business really picked up from the success of Tanahashi as uh, you know, as a, the flag bearer of the of the company, um, you mentioned before, like you're surprised at like when the match ended. It is because ended when it did because the, the video on New Japan World is like like almost double the length of the match, and the reason for that is like two reasons. One is that they they do the the award ceremony after the match, and they're giving awards out to not only the the winner of the G1, Tanahashi, but to different people who participated in the tournament, including Akibono and uh, Togi Makabe and Milano Collection uh, AT. But, you know, the focus is definitely on Tanahashi. He gets the, the G1 trophy flag, and thankfully... This isn't the year that he breaks it because it was his first G1 win. That would come later, which w- w- wouldn't have mattered. Uh, but, you know, the my favorite part about, about the segment of the, the video is that, you know, Tanahashi finally gets what he's really been waiting for for the entire night. And that's that giant check for 10 million yen. And his the way he reacts when he receives this 10 million yen check, it almost feels like he actually believes that it's a legit check that he's getting from New Japan Pro Wrestling for what? What do you mean? It's not a legit check. Oh come on! That's they're not giving ten million fucking yen to anyone like for one night's work. Come on, give me a break. Oh, I was going to ask you what what you think he spent the money on, but uh, hair products, hair care products. <laughs> yeah. no, we're we're thinking the same thing. Yes, uh, <laughs> he gives uh, a post match interview and and uh, uh, you know walks around the the ring and like. 
saying hi to all the fans and like kind of like kind of another signature thing for Tanahashi. Uh, this is this is before he does his air car air guitar stuff. So we don't get the air guitar in 2007 from Tanahashi. What year would that would that be happening? Did you do your research about that, Joel? <laughs> no, you got me there. I did not do air guitar Tanahashi creation research. Okay, well, we're going to have to, you know, you're going to be appearing on a future episode. So you're going to have to research all this and, and give kind of like a, a postscript to this particular episode on, I believe you're on the 2017 episode of Curl Summer. So, you know, pe- people, if you're listening to this, you're going to have to wait for about 10 years to find out these tidbits that Joel did not research, even though he did all this incredible, incredible research for, for other aspects of the match. But not about when Tanahashi left out the important stuff. Yeah, yeah. When the fuck did he start doing the air guitar? That's that's important stuff, Joel. That's what people want to know, WH. That's exactly right. Um, Let's see. Uh, You know, I gotta. I I wanted to point out. I was watching this, and I see this one fan in the ring, and he's wearing he's wearing a white tank top. That, and I swear, this is the same guy that I now see at every Cork and Hall show that Stardom puts on. And he's the the older gentleman wearing just this white tank top. Even in the dead of winter in Japan, where it's not it's not really warm here, it gets kind of cold here. So I don't know why he's wearing a tank top at these Stardom shows. But I it just it wouldn't surprise me if this guy I see in two thousand and seven is the same guy I see now in two thousand nineteen at at Stardom shows and a lot of other Joshi shows that I've attended in in the last several years. Joel, I don't know if you know who I'll I'm take talking a screen about. Cap. Get a screen cap, and then next time you go to a Krakow show, you can say, "Hey, is this you?" Yeah, and then get him on the show. Yeah, I go like, "Sumasan, ano, anato wa, anato wa Like, I, that's my very poor Japanese. But he'll probably like, "Hi." Show off. Oh fuck, that is you. My God, what happened to you? Why do you still wear a wife beater? I don't get it. I never understood like people wear like uh, the you know the sleeveless tank top undershirt. I I, I don't I don't get it. Are you are you an under Sleeveless tank top undershirt kind of a person, Joel. I have had uh, like sort of pullovers, so the sort of sleeveless jumper that you would put on top of a long sleeve shirt. But I never find myself in a situation where the weather is such that my chest will be cold, but my arms will be hot. So uh, no, I don't find myself wearing it too often, actually. No, I'm 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 a I'm a t-shirt, you know, crew neck t-shirt kind of a guy with for undershirts. But anyways. Uh, from this point, we see Tanahashi going to the back. He's greeted by Ricky Choshu uh, and as well other members of Hontai, including his opponent, Yuji Nagata, who are all warmly greeting him so they can pour beer all over him. And I, I, I don't know if you watched this part of the video, Joel. It's really fascinating to see who's in the back and like, you know, and what they look like in 2007. I, no, I confess, I didn't watch that part. Also, who we got? We got... Taguchi, we got Yujiro, Naito, we have Nagata, Nakanishi, Hirasawa, a uh, bunch of other people. But, you know, the funny thing is, is they, they're going to do the kampai and then pour the beer on Tanahashi. But actually, everyone ends up pouring the beer on Hirasawa first. So you can tell, it took that early on in, in, in like Hirasawa's career, he was the guy everybody probably like fucked around with and, and pulled ribs on and just treated like shit which i'm sure probably had to do with the fact that he never lived up to any potential that they saw in him when he got accepted into the dojo yeah i'm watching it now and just two things are standing out to me one nagato looks surprisingly 
chirpy for a guy who's just lost the G1 final. And Naito, <laughs> his hairline, his receding hairline, even back then, is quite something to behold. And I know it's sort of a unspoken secret in the business that his glorious mullet is hiding a, a receding hairline. But yeah, back here, it's quite remarkable. I, I think, you know, Keiji Muto should just have a talk with Tetsuya Naito and say, listen, kid, 2001, I just did the best thing ever. I shaved my head, you know. Though I will say this, like you know, like the bald spot in 2000, 1999-2000 era, Kishimoto was just absolutely horrendous. Naito actually is able to cover it up really well, and I, I got to say that that glorious mane that I used to hate when he was a starter at Genus, I, I I I like in Tranquilo version of Naito, so I think it works for him. So I, I I take that back. I don't really think he should shave his head anytime soon. No, but he definitely needs the fringe or, or the bangs, as you, you would say in uh, North America, to cover it up. Because, yeah, back here, it's a little bit too short and it's definitely exposing the business. Well, we'll see what happens in the next, I don't know, three years with uh, with uh, Naito's hairline here. Um, so we we talking about, like, you know, I think you mentioned that Tanahashi would get a shot at the IWGP Heavyweight title on October 8th, 2007, against Nagata who was a champion at the time. And did he win that match, Joel? He did. He did win. He was successful. And yeah, that was the last time Nagata would ever be IWGP heavyweight champion. So bittersweet moment. Yeah, I guess he was ready for like just passing on the torch. Well, you know what? I got to say, like, you know, if you consider a lot of his comments in recent years, I don't, I don't think he's happy with the way his career has ended. And I think, it's a not a flaw, but it's something to consider when we talk about like the, the genius that is ghetto. You know, I think he's a very smart booker, but there are a lot of like things I don't tropes that he has that I don't like. And I really think like, you know, someone like Nagata would be very, very like useful as a tag team wrestler if he's teamed up with a young lion who could be his like, you know, his apprentice and learn from him, and they could, like, win the tag team titles. But, you know, unfortunately, the tag team titles mean shit in current-day New Japan, so that's not going to happen. I also think the same thing could be done with Kojima, where he would be mentoring, like, a young lion to be his tag team partner, and they could feud over, you know, the the tag team titles with different people. But I don't know how you feel about how the, you know, what, you know, many people call the New Japan dads. I'm not a big fan of, of that term. I just call them, like the third generation, like that's like, as it says on Nagata's t-shirt. I definitely think Nagata and Kojima are really underutilized. They could be doing a lot more with them. And I know Kojima coming back from a fairly serious injury, but definitely those are the two out of the four that I would like to see more from. And yeah, we could definitely be seeing some, something from them in the tag division, but Gato routinely forgets that there is a tag division, so it's a shame. It is. Okay, so we're at the... Oh, so you had all this research of Tanahashi. Did you, did you get to it, or you want to talk about it I did, it now? yeah. <laughs> I've weaved it in seamlessly uh, to the discussion. Brilliant, brilliant. brilliant. I, I thought maybe there was more, so I wanted to give you a chance to talk about anything that might not have been uh, said about Tanahashi's history. But that's great. Thank you, Joel, for for all the incredible uh, you, both Nagata and Tanahashi. You you filled in a lot of like uh, details for us for this match. Uh, let's move on. Now we're at the part where we do the trivia. 
the trivia portion of Cruel Summer. And I, I tailored this because, Joel, you are originally from the United Kingdom. And so I tailored all this pop culture trivia for someone from the UK. So let me ask you, in August of 2007, what is the number one song on the UK pop charts? We're talking about music here. <laughs> this is, I'm not Damon, you know. I know nothing about music. I, I couldn't tell you. I have no idea. Okay, it's a song called The Way I Are by uh, Timbaland featuring Carrie Hilson and DOE. I I only know who Timbaland is. I have no idea who Carrie Hilson or DOE are. Uh, the number one album, do you want to take a chance? No? Um, give me a clue. I, I actually don't know who the fuck this person is, actually. So I was going to say, his name is, the artist is Paul Potts, and the chance, the, the actually, the, the name of the album is called One Chance. So I don't know. Uh, no, no, it's, no idea who that is. Me neither. Uh, number one movie in the box office in the UK of August of uh, of 2007. I'll give you a clue. It's a it's it's a it's a it's a third part of a series. Uh, what genre are we talking here? Uh, action comedy. Uh, Rush Hour three. Yes, great. You got ah. you got the movie part part of this. A lot of people fail on the movie part, and some people like do well in the movie part but no one very few people actually get all three questions correct so i i feel like maybe i make these a little too hard but it depends on each person obviously let's move on to the the wrestling part of the trivia joel in august of 2007 who are the iwgp tag team champions the the heavyweight versions of these titles uh oh i think i know that one it's giant bernard and ah uh... What was the guy's name? The, the he was with Christian for a while. Uh, Tom Tomko, Travis Tomko, Tyson Tomko, Travis Tomko, correct. So you got Travis it correct. Tomko. Great, excellent. Uh, who are the GHC Junior? Uh, who is the G- GHC Junior Heavyweight Champion at this time? GHC Junior Heavyweight Champion. Um, can I have a clue? Uh, <laughs> is someone that big name? Yeah, I think so. Like he works. Both nowadays he works both uh, all Japan and uh, Noah simultaneously. But and this is not his real name. This is his his masked gimmick that he's doing. It's a cartoon character that Noah was doing cross promotion with. No, don't know that one. So it's uh, Kotaro Suzuki under the guise of Mushi King Terry, which I was never a big fan of the Mushi King Terry gimmick. I thought, well, that's Kotaro Suzuki, obviously. He's he's I think he was forced to do it because he's never brought it out again. Or maybe he's not allowed to use it because the copyright holders just said, you can never use this again. You've ruined the character, even though he was a great wrestler. I don't know. Let's move on to Dragon Gate. Who is the Open the Dream Gate champion in August of 2007? Uh, I'm going to say Sima. Yes, correct. Good. Uh, who is the WWE champion? Not the World Heavyweight Champion, but the WWE champion. The the the, the correct belt for this company. Uh, I WrestleMania that year. That was Cena versus Shawn Michaels. Is it? I think it was still John Cena, wasn't it? Yes, you're correct. You're doing very well on this part. A lot of people actually fuck up on the the wrestling part of the trivia. Oddly enough, uh, who is the WWE version of the ECW World Heavyweight Champion in 2007? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, 
Bobby Lashley? Not Bobby Lashley. Uh, he's not in the company anymore. And when he goes to different promotions, he changes his last name. Uh, I don't know. Give up. It's uh, John Morrison. Okay. A- AKA Johnny Impact. Johnny Lucha Libre. Oh, no, what is he in Lucha Underground? Johnny Mondo. You know, Johnny Mundo, yeah. Yeah, he always changes his, his, his last name to match whatever promotion. So I don't know what he would be if he ever came to New Japan. He'd be Johnny Strong Style? Johnny Japan. I don't know. Exactly. Let's hope that never happens. Yeah, I don't. I'd never want to see John Morrison in New Japan for wrestling. And final question, uh, wrestling trivia. Who is the Big Japan Wrestling Death Match Champion? At this time in 2007. <laughs> Can I have a clue? Is it, would it be someone that I've heard of? Probably not. I don't think this guy. Oh, give up. Then. I don't know. Uh, his name is Takashi Sasaki. So he, at that time, he's one of the bigger stars in, in Big Japan before I think Big Japan became like, you know, more kind of this mix of deathmatch and, and uh, you know, their strong division that's, you know, epitomized by Sekimoto and Okobayashi. Uh, it was still, I, I feel I, I can't, I'm not an expert on deathmatch wrestling, and not I'm not an expert on Big Japan uh, of you know the early you know 2000s. But I, I think like it was more of a deathmatch com- company at this point, more so than it is like now, which we have like you know the the, the nice kind of division between deathmatch wrestling and straight ahead hard hitting wrestling. So that brings that's not us- fair. That's really difficult. I thought you were going to ask me about some. You know, where, where's the mainstream ones? You know, like a. Noah or all Japan, but you go straight for the Big Japan Deathmatch division. What I gave, you, I asked you who the junior heavyweight champion for Noah was. You didn't, you didn't know that. This junior division, though, that's obscure. <laughs> what? Listen, I would argue with anyone at at certain points in the history of Noah that the junior division was better than the heavyweight division because he had Marufuji, Kenta, you know, Kanemaru, uh, Sugiara, uh, Kotaro Suzuki. Yeah, exactly. None of those were champion at this point. No, no, not at this time. But yeah, but it, it, the point is there that like the division, the junior division at various points in time had, was really stacked like, like with the hot young talent, and like the the heavyweight division was just like you know it still had great matches, but like you could see like ah oh, these guys are you know they're 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 not that great or they're like so broken down that they're you know they're winding down like Kobashi and, and Misawa and Tawe. Of course Akiyama is probably the biggest star in the heavyweight division at this point who still kind of has like a future ahead of him, you know, like for the next maybe ten years, depending on like how his body holds up. But you know, I I, I was a big fan of the, the Noah Noah Juniors more than I was of the heavyweights. And I think it's just such a shame that like, you know, Marafuji and Kenta especially never got the chance at being a heavyweight champion like in Noah's glory years and that Masawa and whoever else was booking Noah at the time never kind of, you know, gave them, like never stuck it out with them. Do you know what I mean? Well, let, let me flip it around on you then. Who was the GHC heavyweight champion at the time? 2007. It was a Scampi? Well, he's trying to put himself over again, but Scampi, who was it? Yeah, he's just told you the answer. Oh, uh, I don't know. 2007. Oh, it's kind of a... Uh, you know what? My, 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 my trivia skills are complete shit. So please tell me. You'll kick yourself. If you just throw out a name, you'll probably get it right. Kenikobashi? 
No, well, it was Misawa. Misawa, okay. So, what, what about the Triple Crown champion? Triple Crown champion, 2007. Uh, Keiji Muto? Uh, no, it's just something that someone we've already... Have we talked about them? No, maybe we haven't talked about this person today. They defended it at uh, the Wrestle Kingdom of this year. 2007, Wrestle Kingdom. Uh, Against Yuji Nagata. Yuji Nagata. Uh, what? Not Minoru Suzuki, is it? Yes, it was. It was Minoru Suzuki. He had a great run. I actually think I prefer all Japan version of Minoru Suzuki to New Japan version of Minoru Suzuki because at some point, Minoru Suzuki was a baby face in that company, believe it or not. He was really effective, like dickhead baby face in all Japan for wrestling. And it's one, and his tag team with uh, Taiokea was fantastic. I, I love that version of Minoru Suzuki. And it's probably, for me, like the, the version I would like to see come back in New Japan, but I don't think we're ever going to get that. Do you want one more? Give me the uh, WWE US champion. U.S. champion, 2007. Someone with strong historical connections to New Japan. Is it Chris Benoit? Nope. Strong historical connections to New Japan. Uh, Eddie Guerrero? Nope. I don't if know. I say intercontinental title, that should give it away. Oh, would it be Chris Jericho? No. No, I don't he know. He was the first ever IWGP IC champion. Oh, uh, MVP? It was MVP, yeah. Yeah, I hated that belt. The uh, the the icy belt when they introduced it, and it was that god awful brown color. <laughs> Before Nakamura won it, he changed it to the white belt, and then he just like had that epic run with that title, establishing it as like like something that I actually cared about, and I think a lot of fans started to care about because Nakamura was just having like an amazing reign with the IC title at the time. Like, you know, the first one was, like, MVP. Then who won it? Was it Masato Tanaka or Goto? I don't know that. Yeah. I... We're getting too deep with the trivia here. Yeah, anyways, we, we can we can look that up later on our own, and the, the listeners can do that as well. Uh, Joel, before we head out, do you have anything to plug on, on Cruel Summer? Yes, um, obviously, if you are a fan of New Japan Pro Wrestling and you're looking for a New Japan Pro Wrestling-centric podcast, please do check out the podcast that I do with David McDonald. It's called The Super J-Cast. So I like to think, WH, that we are the best New Japan-centric podcast out there. So if you're looking for one, please do give us a listen. You can find us on Twitter at The Super J-Cast. Or if you search on any of your podcast clients for Super J-Cast, I'm sure you'll find us. So please uh, give us a try. I will say this. I think you are definitely in my estimation. And, and you know, not that I'm an expert on every wrestling podcast in, in the world or anything, but like I do think you have the the best like deep analysis of like New Japan shows. Like you do it every week and you, you cover all the major news happenings and, and the shows. And I, I think actually you have the best New Japan centric Twitter account in my estimation. I follow a lot of Twitter accounts you know, about wrestling, including ones about New Japan, like there's, you know, I'm not going to say which other ones there are, but like there's this one, this one, this one. And then I think, well, I like the Super Jcast Twitter handle. I like the Super Jcast podcast. I like the Super Jcast hosts, both of them. So, I, you know, I support you guys. Obviously, I, I like you guys enough to ask you to be on this particular show because I respect your opinions and like your hot takes, 
your cold takes, your lukewarm takes about New Japan. I don't always agree with them. I, I will say that, but I do respect them, and and I do I am entertained by you and Damon on on the Super J cast. Um, anything else? Like, don't you have like I, you're always plugging stuff at the end of your your own shows, dude? Uh, I, I won't push my luck. I'm hope, hoping that there are a few listeners of this show who haven't heard of the Super J cast, so just give us a listen, please. Yeah, find them. You can find them over at VoicesWrestling.com and everywhere you can find podcasts. Just look it up. Uh, any final thoughts before we head out here, Joel? Uh, no, just thanks very much for having me on. I'm looking forward to being back in 10 years' time. Yes, that's, that's true. We're going to cover... Uh, one of my favorite uh, G1s of recent years. But we're not going to talk about that. Now we'll talk about it in 10 years' time. So I want to thank all the listeners. I want to thank Joel, of course, for appearing on the show. Uh, I want to thank you know all the feedback I've been getting recently about the series. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It, it, it really helps me you know, kind of motivate me to like do these, continue to do these shows. I, I'm having a ton of fun. I will say this, Joel. This part of doing... The show is my favorite, like actually talking to different people about the match and like kind of the the history surrounding the match. But I will say this to pull back the curtain a little. I fucking hate scheduling these recording sessions because I live in Japan and you are one of the few people who is actually in a in the same time zone or close to being in the same same time zone as me. Uh, No, you're one of three people. So there's you. There's Jojo Remy, who, of course, lives in Japan. And there's uh, Davis Storm, who lives in Australia. So everyone else lives in the UK, lives in North America, either in Canada or the United States. And it's a big pain in the ass to coordinate. You should know this because, like, you live in China, but, like, Damon lives in the United States. Yeah, it's not easy. It's usually a 12-hour time difference. So there's been certainly a lot of late nights and early mornings for both of us. Yes, but thankfully you and I are relatively... Are we in the t- same time zone? I'm one hour behind you. It's close enough, isn't it? But uh, with that being said, let's end things here. Thank you, Joel. Thanks, all listeners. And I'll see everyone on the next episode. Bye. Bye.